Hi. Fine morning, church. My name's Jean. Join with me as we continue reading God's words together. Um, the second Bible reading we have today is from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 to 25. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 to 25. Therefore, with the minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it is not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that, you have, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass and all their glories like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Thank you, Jean. Well, as a church, we've been thinking about the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And it, it is my prayer and hope over these few weeks that we would more deeply appreciate the person and work of the Holy Spirit, to be in awe of his majesty and wonder. And today we'll be focusing on the sanctifying spirit. What does that mean? And for, for this talk, uh, this series, in fact, it's, it's what you call a doctrinal series, where we're thinking uh, of the truth of the Holy Spirit doctrinally. So it's different to our normal staple where we pick a passage, we go from book to book, uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. So we'll be doing a little bit of jumping around today. So have your Bibles ready. But let's pray once again, and we'll consider. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we consider the third person of the Trinity the one who is worthy of all praise and honour and glory, just as you are. And so, Lord, we pray that you be our teacher. Teach us what we lack and fill us where we are empty. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, have you ever thought about what is it that God deeply desires for you? What is it that God really longs for in you and for you? What, what are the things God is really deeply concerned for you? I mean, we all know what we're concerned about, don't we? We know what we're anxious about, what we strive for, what we pray about. But are they the same things that God is concerned for? What do you think? I mean, take for example, I suspect we're all concerned about our own happiness, aren't we? Why wouldn't you be? Who wouldn't want to be happy? I mean, we hear it often enough. Do whatever makes you happy. You hear parents say to their kids, I just want you to be happy. I want you to grow up, have a happy life, be happy. And it makes sense. Who wouldn't, wouldn't want to be happy? I, mean, I remember there was a season 
as a, as a parent where I wanted my kids to be happy with me. And so I said to Yvonne, from now on, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to be the good cop and you be the bad cop. <laughs> I'll always say yes, but it's your job to say no because I want them to be happy with me. But of course, that was just terrible parenting and that didn't work. But it makes you think, is God concerned, just as concerned about our happiness as we are? Or we're also concerned about our health, aren't we? Being healthy is important. Looking after our bodies, that's important. So we exercise, we eat healthy, we sleep. Yvonne and myself, we've been trying to keep each other healthy since COVID times. We've been running a bit. Now, I'm not a very competitive person as long as I beat Yvonne. And so even yesterday... I saw that she woke up earlier than me, she ran 10K, said, oh, I'd better do 10 as well, and I'm not very competitive, but anyway, we try to stay healthy. But more seriously, health is important. We should be concerned, and we do get concerned when those amongst us in our church family are, are sick, unhealthy, are admitted into hospital or have to undergo surgery, we get together, we pray. But is God as concerned about our health as we are? What do you think? And is God concerned about the other things we're concerned about? We're concerned about success, about achievements, about fulfilling our goals. But is God just as concerned about those things as we are? Now, of course, God cares. He cares for us. He cares for us more than we know. But he does not care about those things nearly as much as he cares for our godliness. What God is most concerned about in us is, in fact, our godliness. And our godliness as Christians is, in fact, tied to the honor of God. If we are godly, that brings honor to God. If we are ungodly, that dishonors God. God is far more concerned about our godliness than our happiness. It's important to recognize that priority. Don Carson, a great theologian, I love reading his works and listening to him. He said, We quickly learn that God is more interested in our holiness than in our comfort. He more greatly delights in the integrity and purity of his church than in the material well-being of its members. He shows himself more clearly to men and women who enjoy him and obey him than to men and women whose horizons revolve around good jobs, nice homes, nice, nice houses, and reasonable health. He is far more committed to a building, to building a corporate temple in which his spirit dwells than he is in preserving our reputation. I found that so helpful because it, it gives us the perspective of what God is more interested in, what God is far more concerned about, and that is our holiness. Now, why do I start talking about holiness when we're thinking about the spirit? Well, it's because when we understand that God desires holiness in us, that is how we can come to understand why he has given his spirit in us. Is it to make us holy, to sanctify us, that's what it means, to make us holy, that's what it means. Now perhaps to help us understand why God has done what he did in bestowing his spirit, a bit like last week. Remember how last week we took the big picture. We stepped back a bit and we considered the big picture of God's cosmic purpose. Well, we're going to do that once again. 
because it will help us understand and appreciate why God gave us his spirit in the first place. And so we need to go back to the beginning again. And so remember the story of Genesis. Inside the garden, Adam and Eve, they enjoyed fellowship with God. It was good. It was beautiful. They enjoyed fellowship with God. By chapter 3, Adam and Eve broke that fellowship and the world descended into darkness and chaos and sin and brokenness. And we continue to see that brokenness today in the world, don't we? The world is a broken and messy place. Not just talking about the crimes, the abuses, the violence, the war. But even if you think within families, how broken so many families are. It's a place where there's meant to be harmony and peace. But yet, families ruptured on so many levels. Children estranged from their parents. Parents not able to get along with each other. And then in the Western world, the family unit's torn apart with so much confusion about what it means to be a husband, a wife, a father, a mother, a man, a woman. It's a broken world. The heart of the problem of this world is the problem of the human heart, and that started in Genesis 3. And so by Genesis 3, we're left with this big dilemma now. This is the big picture. How can a holy God, who is perfect, righteous, upright, majestic, supreme, how can a holy God now relate to broken, sinful, unholy human beings? How is that at all possible? That's a big problem. That's the big dilemma by the time we get to Genesis 3. For God to be holy means that God is so different, so distinct from the world, so separate in his moral purity, in his perfection, in his majesty, in his sovereignty, and his awesome power. God is holy, and the world is not. People are not. They've descended into darkness. And so that's the dilemma. How can a holy God relate to unholy human beings. I mean, the Bible speaks about God as him being too pure to look upon evil. He cannot tolerate any wrong. God cannot associate with anything unholy. And we read of God being a consuming fire. You try to come close to God, you'll, you'll die. You'll just die. He's too pure to look upon evil. Imagine you know, a mosquito, a mosquito flying around at night and it finds that light, that, that zapper, and, and it comes closer and closer to the light and it gets zapped, it dies. It's a bit like that. In fact, it's far more serious than that with God. It's a bit like a mosquito coming closer and closer to the blazing sun. Come any closer, you'll just be completely distinguished. You'll disintegrate. you die. You see, God is that pure for sinful people to come closer to God. You just die. And so there's the big problem right from Genesis 3. How can a holy God relate, have a relationship with sinful human beings? I mean, how can we ever dream of coming close to God? And the story of the Bible is the story of how God goes about to make that possible. How God makes that possible so that a holy God can relate to unholy human beings. And what needs to change, what do you think needs to change? God cannot change. He cannot become unholy so that he will relate to unholy human beings. What needs to change is that unholy, sinful human beings need to be made holy. There needs to be a change in humanity for them to come close to God. And so what did God do to make people holy? Well, come back 
with me to the story of Exodus. You'll be familiar with the story of Exodus. How did God make his people holy? Well, firstly, God made them holy by saving them, by setting them apart from the Egyptians. God separated them so that they would live distinct lives that are completely different to the Egyptians. They were delivered, you know, the story of the plague. And then what God also did was after they were saved, the way God maintained the holiness of his people, how did the people of Israel stay holy? Well, the way their holiness was maintained, the way their distinctiveness in this world was maintained, was by God's presence with them. God was present with them. God chose to dwell with them. And so we read in Exodus 29, God said, I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God. So how can unholy, sinful human beings be in the presence of God? Well, God is choosing to do so. However, for them to be holy, they have to be different. They have to be set apart. I mean, no one else in the world had the presence of God but the people of God. And the way God provided for them to be holy how they could be changed so that they could have the presence of God was that God gave them the laws to live by. God saved them. God gave them the laws. You are to be different. How? You worship only one God. You cannot make any idols. You cannot be like the Egyptians. You have to rest one day a week, the Sabbath. You have to honour your parents. You have to, you're not allowed to murder or lie or covet. Like all the other nations around you, you have to be different. Set apart, holy. That is how the people of God, that was how the people of God were to be holy. They lived by God's ways. But more than that, how did God maintain the holiness of his people? God gave them the temple worship, that whole sacrificial system of priesthood, of sacrifices, of the temple, of the tabernacle. The way the people of God were to stay holy was that they have to live by God's way. Be different. And God was so precise. You read Exodus, Leviticus, and all that. The, the, the precision of what had to be done in terms of the temple articles had to be made exactly the way God wanted. The, the, the mentions of the tabernacle and later the temple had to be exactly the way God determined. If it was out of place, they would be unholy. There was only one way to be holy. You do anything wrong and you would die. You read the Old Testament, so many people dying all the time. Forgetting to wash yourself when you come into the tent, you die. You come close to the temple when you're not meant to, you die. If you don't belong to the right tribe and you come close, you die. You, you drink fermented drink and you enter the tent and you die. Do anything wrong with the sacrifices and you die. So many other ways you can die in the presence of God. What was God teaching? You have to be holy to be in the presence of God. There was no other way. And it was so hard to keep all those rules. But that was the only way to come into the presence of God, to be set apart by God and to be holy. But it was so, so hard. Because if you trace the story of the Old Testament, what do you find? What happened with the people of God? Were they able to keep it? Well, what we see was that they fell over and over again. They failed big time, miserably. So that by the end of the Old Testament, so we're seeing the big picture, 
by the end of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, what you have at that point was pretty much a rotten people who were so godless. They were meant to be the people of God, but they were so godless. The sacrifices they offered were not perfect, but blemished, blind animals, crippled animals. The priests themselves, they violated the promise, the covenant. They caused their people to stumble. I mean, they had all the appearance of holiness, but inside they were just rotten. The people of God, they prostituted themselves to other gods. They worshipped just like all the other nations. They blended in. They're not set apart, not different. And all the laws of God were almost all but forgotten. And so in the Old Testament, for the people of God to come into relationship with God, they had to be holy. God provided a way, but they couldn't keep it. And so what did God do? How could the holy God have a relationship with unholy, sinful human beings? Well, there had to be a deeper change within humanity. There had to be a change from deep within the human heart. Something had to take place so that there would be a holiness that came from the inside. And so what was that? Well, God promised in the prophet Ezekiel. We've read this over the last couple of weeks. Ezekiel 36, God promised, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove you from your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Why did God make such a promise? Because on their own devices, they could not keep the laws of God. They failed. They could not maintain their holiness. They did not have the resource to be holy. And so God promised them his own spirit. Well, what's needed was God's own presence, not just outside with the temple, but inside within their heart. They had the appearance of holiness, but inside they were rotten. And so it was the inside that needed change. Now we come to the New Testament. And so what happened? So if we turn to 1 Peter. Well, what happened now was that in a sense, God pulled back the curtains so that now he actually gives us a view from the inside, from God's perspective of what God planned all along for humanity, for those whom he has chosen. And we get a view of God's cosmic purpose, why God gave his spirit in the first place. Now, I want you to turn to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, and we'll read verses 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2, we read, To God's elect, this is the Apostle Peter speaking, To God's elect, that is, those chosen by God, strangers in the world. Isn't that interesting? Once they have been chosen by God, they become strangers in this world. Why is that? Because if you've been chosen by God, you've been set apart. You've been taken aside for God. And so you become a stranger to the world. The world is no longer your home. You've got a different home. You don't belong to the world anymore. So they're strangers in the world. And then we read on, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. I mean, this is the, 
the cosmic purpose of God that he gives us an insight to. The curtains pull back, we can see. Decided even before the foundations of the world, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And now we read, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. The people of God in the Old Testament, they could not stay holy. They could not keep the laws. They could not do perfectly all the temple sacrifices. But now what does God do? Through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. It is the work of the Spirit to make us holy. It has to come from the inside. It was the only way for people to become holy so that we can relate to God. And then we read, for what purpose? For obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling of his blood. That is, for what purpose is the Spirit making us holy for? To trust and obey Jesus. To be purified. And so what we have here, by the time we get to the New Testament, is God's cosmic purpose. It's the big, big picture of God's eternal purpose. And so the question, that big problem in the Old Testament from Genesis 3, how can a holy God come in contact and relate to unholy, sinful human beings? Well, God gave his spirit to change them from the inside so that they would be holy, the sanctifying spirit. It all depends on God. Our salvation depends on God. Our progression of godliness depends on God. The Father calls. The Son, he died and he was raised back to life. He's the one who is to be trusted and obeyed, the one who is the intercessor, the mediator, the one who justifies. But it is the Spirit of God who works in the heart to bring about faith. And so those of us who believe in Jesus, it's not because we chose to. It's because God chose to, by his Spirit, to give us that faith, to believe in Christ. And it is the Spirit's work to apply the things of Christ to the souls of people. So that now, instead of the presence of God you know, in the temple, in the tabernacle, outside, the presence of God is now in his people to enable us to live the holy life that God demands. And so now we come to our passage and we'll reflect on a few of these verses. What is the work of the Spirit now amongst us who are Christians? You can see why God gave his spirit, because there was no other way we can be holy without God's spirit. But what is the work of the Holy Spirit? Well, he gives us a new identity and a completely new way of life that is set apart for God. A new identity. We're now children of God. And we have a new way of life that is to live like children of God. And the spirit enables us to live in such a way. And perhaps one of the most precious picture of what God has done for us in the gospel is the picture of how God has made us his children, the doctrine of adoption. Children of God are to be like God, to reflect the family trait. We see it in our passage. God calls us to be holy. Why? Because he is holy. And you know how in families we're meant to... not meant to, but we do reflect some things or the traits of our parents, the mannerisms, the behaviours. Do you see that in yourself as you think, oh, that's a bit like my dad or my mum? In fact, just the other week, um, 
someone confused Esther for Yvonne and Yvonne for Esther, and I'm not sure if it's a compliment to any of them, but we reflect something of our parents. But what's the family trait of God? What, what is the mark that you belong to God? What is the mark that we belong to God? The family trait is holiness. Holiness. What is God most concerned about? Not our happiness, but our holiness. We have been set apart by God, for God, to live like God. That's holiness. I'll say that again. We have been set apart by God, for God, to live like God. It's how we can be holy. I find it helpful just to reflect in terms of what God has done in our adoption. What God has done out of the generosity of his heart. I mean, the picture of us being children of God, that's this picture of adoption, isn't it? You know, we're like orphans, unwanted orphans, living in a terrible mess, filthy, on the streets, dirty, disgusting, nothing to eat but the scraps from the rubbish bin. Along comes a friendly man, a gentle man. He sees us, but we're not the nice person. We're rude, selfish, disrespectful. But anyway, the man comes along, and with such compassion on orphans like us, he takes us into his house. He cleans us up, washes us of our filth, puts on new clothes, feeds us. And he says, well, this is your room. You can stay here. This is your place. Now, how do, you, how do you respond if someone's been such, so generous, so kind? Well, how do you respond? Well, would you go back to the streets and live in the filth and eat from the rubbish bins again? Of course not. But more than that, this man now says, not only can you stay in this place, I'm going to make you my son. I'm going to make you my daughter. All that is mine now belongs to you. But that's what God has done for us. You see, we are in the family of God now and forever. And so how do we live in the family of God? Well, that is to be like God. There has to be a change. And who helps us with that change? Who affects that change? It is the Spirit of God. His testimonies, his stories of those who become Christians. What happens? Often you hear of a big change, don't you? I used to live for myself but now I live for God. I used to find my identity in my work, in my career, in my successes, or in my relationships. But now I find my identity in Christ. I used to be arrogant and proud, but now I've been so humbled by the cross of Christ. I used to live in sin, impure, in all my thoughts, casual in my deeds and thoughtless, but now the slightest impure thought I quash it and I purge it out. Why is that? That change. That's the work of God's Spirit. And so that's what Peter says here in 1 Peter 1 verse 14, verses 14 to 16. Have a look. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, Be holy because I am holy. What does God want? 
our holiness. How does God help us to be holy? He gives us his spirit to do so. And so as Christians, we're meant to be so different, meant to always be so different to this world, not meant to conform and blend and just go with the flow. If we go with the flow of society, I mean, so many things happen in society. If, we just, if you cannot tell the difference, then something is wrong there. If you cannot tell the difference, it means that you, you cannot really tell whether you belong to God's family or not. Because it's so easy, isn't it, to conform to the world? I mean, you think about the things we hear, the things that are taught. Very easy to just accept it. I mean, how many genders are there? There are dozens according to society. Or do I go with what God says? There are just two. Family. What's the best way to raise a family? How many parents? One father, one mother, and their children. That's the best way. I'll go with what God says or what society tells me. Or, or the pursuits of this world where worth is placed, where identity is placed, in beauty, in successes, in achievements. Or do I first seek the kingdom of God? Very easy to conform. But the holy child of God will not conform because they are different. Set apart for God. Which is why, if you are a Christian, you would have experienced this. When Christians, when we sin, we can never be comfortable in our sins. If we're comfortable in our sins and they become habitual, then something is deeply wrong. In fact, what will happen is, if we have the Spirit of God in us, He will make us so uncomfortable with our sins. I mean, have you felt it? When you do something wrong, I certainly felt it, that guilt and conviction that comes from the Spirit of God, it pricks at our conscience. I mean, I've noticed in my heart when in moments I've said things that I shouldn't and I knew I shouldn't, that prick. Or when I speak in a manner that's just rude and unchristian, I've, I've done that, there's that prick. We're not meant to suppress it. Or when I react without any self-control but with temper, the heart is heavy with guilt. There's that prick and we cannot ignore it. In fact, the Spirit helps us to recognize it and to repent, to apologize, to reconcile, to come again to the cross of Christ and find grace and mercy. That's how the Spirit works in us to make us holy. Whereas when we continue to give into our sins, what happens to our hearts? If you continue to give into it, we lie, a small lie becomes another lie. And what happens? The heart becomes hardened. You see it, it's like it's burnt. It becomes more callous. And what it also does is it grieves the Holy Spirit. It dishonors and displeases the Father. And more than that, when Christians behave in ways that is just like the world, it makes a mockery of the cross. It is like to spit in the face of Jesus Christ. What's the motivation for holy living? It is the cross. Did Jesus die for nothing? Did his blood mean nothing? It's why Peter here in this passage speaks of how the redeemed were redeemed in the first place, that we remember the cost. Look at verses 18 to 19 with me. Verses 18 to 19. 
For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. It means we cannot take for granted the cross of Christ. Instead, as a child of God, I strive to please God, live the holy life as God's Holy Spirit dwells in me. God's presence is in me, not outwardly in the temple like in the Old Testament, but inwardly by his Spirit, so that we come to hate sin and love God, hate sin more and love God more. It's important for us to remember what the Spirit does today in us. And so let me ask you again, what is God's concern for your life? What is God's concern for our church? It's not our happiness, not primary. It's our holiness. Otherwise, he wouldn't give us his Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit was given so that unholy people like us might be make, made holy like our Father is. And so the life of a Christian is described in our first reading as walking in step with the Spirit, living by the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit. But of course we all recognize that it's not easy to be holy. Not easy, but it is always better. You see, holy living is never easy because you never slip into holiness. It's a bit like exercise. You never slip into being fit. You slip into sin, slip into lying, slip into envy, gossiping, in all sorts of evils, but we never slip into holiness. It takes work. The Spirit working in us, it takes our efforts. It's why John Chapman, one of the greatest evangelists of, of our country, really, speaking of holiness in his book, he said, the first 60 years are the hardest. He was describing his first 60 years as a Christian. It is hard to be holy. The world says conform. God says be holy. And it's not easy. Not easy to stand out in the workplace. Not easy to stand out in school amongst your friends. But with the Spirit's help, we can. Not perfect, but with progression. And it is always better. Why do you think God in his amazing love would allow us to experience sadness? Why does God let us experience pain and setbacks and disappointments and loneliness? Why? If he loves us. Well, because if by it we are made more dependent upon God, longing more for his presence, more holy. It is worth it. Holiness is more important. Or why is it that God allows us, his people whom he loves, experience all sorts of health issues, all sorts of pain and suffering? Why? I thought God loves us. Because if by it we learn endurance, perseverance, we're made more holy, then it's worth it. God is far more interested in our holiness than our happiness. Or why is it that God places us in difficult situations of, of stress, of relational conflict? With all, we've all been in some of those. 
or intentions in life. Because if by it we learn patience, humility, holiness, it's worth it. Or why is it that God allows us to experience wrongs and injustices and and hurt? Because if by it we learn forgiveness and grace and mercy and holiness, it is worth it. It's how God's Spirit sanctifies us, grows us to be more like Christ. You see, our life, we're like a rough stone and the Spirit just chips away, chisels away at the rough edges so that by the end, we will be a precious stone, just like the Lord Jesus himself. Just like the Lord Jesus. And in God's economy, none of our experiences are wasted because it is for our holiness. You see, the successful life God wants in us and what God desires is actually quite simple again. Holiness. Not seen in riches and, or successes and achievements, but seen in holiness. And so I'll finish off with this, John Chapman again. The measure of a successful life is not money nor career, not even family, but whether I'm holy, whether I'm like Jesus. So the less I'm like Jesus, the more I have failed in life. But all of us, by the Spirit of God, we're on a journey to be more like Jesus. And that is what God desires. And he gives us his Spirit to make that so. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your wise and awesome cosmic purposes, you have designed us so that we would be your children, holy because of your Spirit and because of what you have done for us in, the, in your Son, Jesus Christ. And so help us, Lord, to recognize the work of your Spirit in our lives, to make us holy to make us more like Jesus, to be holy just because you have called us to be and to make us more like you. And we do long for the day when we will be made complete and perfect. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.